With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. For Brad Katsuyama, this is success. Success is about building a company that lasts, that people are proud to work at, that my kids can work at someday. And that's not measured in dollars. From Business Insider, I'm Rich Filoni. Katsuyama has never considered himself a maverick or anything like an entrepreneur. Before founding the Investors Exchange, he had a cushy job as an executive at the Royal Bank of Canada, RBC. But the more he learned about high-frequency trading, where computers can trade a bunch of stocks in a fraction of a second, the less comfortable he felt. In fact, he felt so strongly that high-frequency trading was harming the market that he left to create his own exchange, the Investors Exchange, designed to thwart predatory trading. Investors can trade stocks from other exchanges on IEX with the idea that it's a level playing field. And in October, it will list its first company, Interactive Brokers. As CEO, Katsuyama has adapted to being the face of IEX. But when Michael Lewis wrote a book about him in 2014, the bestseller Flash Boys, he felt a bit in over his head. I had never been on television, live television before, until 60 Minutes. I had more LinkedIn requests by the end of that 60 Minutes episodes than I had connections. Uh, we had over 500 people during the episode send resumes to the IEX email, so things changed very quickly. Beforehand, you know, Michael Lewis gave me pretty good advice, and he said, read something about you, you know, that says you're a hero, and read something about you that's really negative. And he said, do an inventory of how that feels. If the bad one feels much, much worse than the good one feels good, he goes, stop reading everything. Um, so I did that, and the bad one felt really, really bad. And so I just, I really, I don't know if I've read an article fully written about me in in years. You know, my team's good at keeping me informed, and I, I focus on the business. And I, I think if if you don't let it change you, I think I'm the same person I was before that happened. The, the good part, I think, for us is that, and I knew this as, as the CEO of the company, there a lot of employees at IEX were in Flash Boys. And I think a lot of people were going to look to me and say, how is Brad acting or how is he reacting to the attention? And, and I was very cognizant of, of setting an example where if, I'm, if it's not going to change the way you know, I behave, you know, it probably shouldn't change the way that you behave as well. So I think as a company, we handled it very well. And I think it served us well, you know, as the spotlight dims in a way, I'm actually happier that there's less attention um, and there's more focus on the business. And, and I think that if we, if we had bought into the spotlight, 
we'd be craving the spotlight more and more and trying to do things that probably go against our our, our philosophy and, and our mission and, and our character. And so I think we didn't buy into the hype at the time. We don't we don't miss it now that some of it's gone. And in a way, we've we've survived that storm, I think, better than than when we entered it. Well, on that note, how did you think that Lewis represented you, even just you personally? Yeah. You know, he absolutely nailed me personally, my character and kind of what was really funny was that I was really nervous going into it because I had read basically everything Michael had had written. And his In preparation car- or just as a fan? No, as a fan. And, and, and um, you know, Moneyball is probably still one of my favorite books of all time. So now you got to star in one of your yeah, favorite Yeah, I writings. never thought that was actually going to happen, but <laughs> but his characters are larger than life. And, and I was really concerned. You know, I'm, I'm a pretty normal person and never meant to, you know, cause much trouble, even like growing up. You know, I always just try to get along with people. It's just it's a lot easier to do that than than to fight. And so in the middle of, you know, his his research and his writing, he said, I'm having a lot of trouble writing about you. And he said, because you're kind of boring. (laughs) (laughs) And so he flew up to Toronto to have dinner with five of my childhood friends. And he went around with my mom, my stepfather to try to get to know, I guess, me better or my background better. And he and he on the plane ride back, he sends me a text and says, I figured you out. And I was like, oh. You know, here we go. You were never looking for a fight. And he goes, the fight found you and you fought back. And and that that is the truest statement that could ever be made about how I ended up in this situation. I was never looking ever really to, to fight with anyone. It just so happened that this was the way my life went. And when faced with the decision of whether to let it go or to fight back, I chose to fight back. And I think him figuring that out on his own I think for me was the first time I was comfortable that the way he was going to portray me was actually going to be an accurate depiction of who I am as a person. So that's what resonated with people in Flash Boys is that this could have been anybody. You know, I don't view myself as as special in any particular way. I just think I was in the right I was the right person in the right situation. So growing up did you did you have a vision of who you would become? Did you have a a, a dream of what you wanted to be? Absolutely not. <laughs> I, I've had a I've had a comfortable life. I've ha- I've had the same group of friends really since I was five years old. Grew up in a in a pretty normal place. My my family life is solid. It's just I was never forced or had this strong desire to be something. So yeah, no. In in a funny way, I, which is really why it's I read Michael Lewis for to to read about other people who are doing amazing things. I never in a million years thought that I would be in a Michael Lewis book. Just never. No, not at all. There's nothing about my background. I think that's that part of the struggle is there was nothing about my background um, that made him think that this is something that would would have happened. Well, one interesting piece is that he was like, give me some, you know, talk about, because typically it's something in your childhood sparks something. And so when he found out my parents were divorced, he like really tried to dive in. It was like, well, tell me more about that. And I was like, listen, I said, my my mom and my dad are still friends. My dad would come over for Christmas and we'd all golf together. And he's like, okay, that's not going to work. <laughs> he basically scratched it out. So, you know, I've always been someone that's had a lot of ideas. I've always been someone who's tried to give advice and be a, like a kind of a good friend and a good teammate. But yeah, there was never this like, you know, take on the system mentality at all. And even aside from your personal character, was there ever any side of you that was maybe entrepreneurial in that sense? 
I worked at the same place my entire career. So, um, so no. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I worked at the Royal Bank of Canada. I think inside of the bank, I had many different jobs. And so I think I've, I, I always like building and creating, you know, running and building teams. And, you know, I had seven jobs in 12 years at, at RBC. And so I think maybe there was a bit of that spirit there, but I could have retired at RBC and never had a second doubt. So, so I think I'd say I'm more of an entrepreneur than, than an entrepreneur. And what led you into finance in the first place? Definitely not a love of finance. I didn't. I mean, I took finance in school, but I never really had an affinity for the stock market. Um, you know, I played hockey and football growing up, and my stepfather played hockey with someone who was a client of the Royal Bank of Canada. And he said, "You know what? I think Brad would be a good trader. He's like he's competitive, he's good with numbers, and he's pretty smart." And so my stepdad came home and he said, "You know, Jack thinks you'd be a good trader." And here's a contact at the Royal Bank of Canada. And so I sent it in. And, and basically, it was choosing between that, a job at Microsoft, uh, a job in investment banking, and a marketing job at Procter & Gamble. Those were my picks. And I picked trading. And, and really, I, it's just where I ended up, in a way. I think part of IEX, knowing the risks we took to start IEX, I think partly is grounded in, I don't feel that working on Wall Street identifies who I am. So if I lost it all tomorrow... I think I could be totally happy with my life from that point forward. And I think a lot of people over-identify with their jobs. And in, in, in particular, I don't, I don't really feel that way. We'll be right back after this message. So I'm here in the studio with Nicholas Carlson. And Nick, what's your title now? It's too long. It's Global Editor-in-Chief of Business Insider and Insider and Chief Content Officer, Insider Inc., Cool. And you're here to talk to us about Ignition, which is Business Insider's big annual conference. But what does that mean? What is Ignition? Yeah, Ignition is a conference we have every year. It's two days in New York, and it's where we have extremely successful and brilliant business people talk to a whole crowd of people, uh, possibly including you. Cool. And uh, who are going to be some of the people this year? Well, I'm really excited to hear from Danica Patrick, the famous IndyCar driver, and then also Barbara Corcoran, who made her name as a very, very savvy real estate agent and is now a shark on TV, along with Mark Cuban, who's coming this year, too, and Steve Case from AOL. And Whoopi Goldberg's going to be there. She's going to talk about her, well, maybe she'll talk about her weed business, which is a big deal. And I'm also excited to hear from Sir Martin Sorrell. He, he, he left WPP under scandal, and now he's re-emerging. So what's, what's he up to? This sounds good. You could get tickets at uh, businessinsider.com slash ignition. And by the way, the reason to do it isn't just to hear the people on stage. It's also that you get to meet other brilliant people from around the world who came to our conference and have great ideas about what they're doing with their businesses that you can use and with your own. Awesome. This is Success listeners can get their tickets with 15% off at businessinsider.com slash ignition and use the code SUCCESS at checkout. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. 
there's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. We're back. Brad Katsuyama had a comfortable career at RBC. That is, until he started to notice something that didn't sit right with him. So one of my jobs was going from running risk trading, where I managed a group of human traders, to taking on the role to run global electronic sales and trading. And that meant uh, managing a team of computer programmers and network engineers, people who are building algorithms that my trading team was using. That shift was eye-opening for me because it turned out that those network engineers and, and programmers actually knew more about how the stock market worked than I did or my trading team did as, as traders. And, and when you start to understand the plumbing of the stock market, you start to ask a lot of questions. Well, how can they trade at that speed? Well, why is the exchange selling them this cable? Why are the exchanges erecting these microwave dishes? You start to get down this questioning path and then you figure out, wow, I can't find any of this stuff on the internet. I have to hire people with insider knowledge about how these exchanges are actually operating their businesses. It does become an insider's game where the majority of people, including some of the, you know, some big investors, have no idea this is what's happening in the stock market. Because again, if you're applying this tax on people, you don't want them to know that they're being taxed. You don't want them to know that you even exist. You just want to keep applying that. So that's really what happened. This subculture in the stock market exploded. And, and it was taxing everyone else who needs the stock market to invest in companies. And like that's, that's the thing that's, I think, you know, most concerning about all this is that the purpose of the stock market is you have companies that need capital to build their businesses, build products, provide services, et cetera. And the investors are the ones who have that capital. So that transference in today's market, 2018, should be pretty efficient, Right. Unfortunately, it's not efficient at all because the the middlemen, the exchanges, have made it unbelievably complicated to extract maximum rents from that transference of capital. Um, so I think that's you know what we're trying to do is fix that. And then when you were exposed to this, at what point did it go from being something that you were upset by or just intrigued in how this even was happening to, all right, I'm quitting my job. I'm starting my own exchange. That's a pretty big, yeah. pretty big leap. It, yeah. So I think that the decision point at, at RBC, there were a few factors. I think one was, yes, we wanted to solve this problem on a bigger scale. Two is that the success we had at RBC, there was this, there's this one survey called the Greenwich Associates Report. And RBC went from being ranked number 19 in the United States for, for products to number one in six months. And that was the team you were working That with. was the team that I was running. So that was a huge win. Now, that doesn't mean we're number one in market share. That just means people think our products are the best. The analogy I used is that's like winning the Super Bowl, and then everyone the next year is a free agent, and then you have a salary cap. Like, there's no way you can keep that team together. So what was happening at RBC is that me and a bunch of my key people were all getting job offers from other banks. So if I don't do anything... I'm just going to be managing a team that's been depleted and there's going to be all this turnover and we're going to have to start over and and try to do a bunch of things. So that wasn't very appealing. And the third piece was that I was starting to read more articles. This is in 2011 where big banks, I remember reading this article that's saying Goldman Sachs is having trouble paying its best people because they want to pay them enough to keep them, which they have to do, but they don't want to pay them too much to enrage society. 
and I started to see hear more and more about you know Wall Street compensation. I said, wow, it's it's it is society's having an impact on the way Wall Street operates. So I, I also kind of wanted to kind of get in front of a tidal wave that I thought was coming where Wall Street was going to be more accountable for transparency and truth and fairness. It, there was this like trend. There's like still, a cultural shift after the Great Recession. Absolutely. The financial crisis created a mistrust between Main Street and Wall Street. And I thought, you know, we can create a company that that essentially positions ourselves for this wave. Um, not to say people didn't trust RBC. They did. It was a great it was a great place to work. But just kind of creating our own company to keep this group together, to solve a bigger problem and to be well positioned for this change that we're seeing coming on Wall Street. You know, those three factors were the reason that we decided to leave. And then what did your family and friends say when you, you decided that you were going to do this? So the first person who I had to get buy-in from was my wife. My second son was born three days after I started IEX. Uh, so obviously we all, life was changing pretty dramatically. But yeah, she she was always a believer in kind of, you know, this is your path and I have confidence in what you're doing. And, and kind of the deal we made is that if this doesn't work, you know, I'm going to leave finance and we're going to prioritize where we live and I'll find another job. And so, again, I think I think it was an asset to not be attached to Wall Street because I was willing to take a risk that other people weren't necessarily willing to take. So I got buy in from her and my family, my friends. No one no one really questioned, you know, what we were doing. And, and I think I think I had enough conviction at that point that this was the right path that, you know, people bought in and. A lot of people from REC, when they heard I was leaving, wanted to leave, and we took a very small group of people. But I think you know, one piece of advice I would give people is it ended on good terms because I didn't hide anything from RBC. When I had the idea, I brought it to them. Uh, we tried to do it, actually, as an RBC-created exchange. And the customers told us, well, you can't, it can't just be RBC because Goldman Sachs will never want to route to an RBC-created exchange. So RBC understood that they couldn't be a part of this exchange. And so I think being above board, and, and there were people I trusted at RBC. Just um, being fully transparent. Being fully transparent. It, we, we walked away. I think a lot of times people try to hide things, and it ends up working a lot out a lot worse. And frankly, RBC is still a good customer. The relationships are still there. There's still a, a level of trust. And, and I think if I had tried to hide all of this, that would have been destroyed. And I had worked my whole career there. So it was never why why would anyone want to you know burn a bridge like that? What did you find in terms of the experience of being a leader as an executive at a big bank to now being the CEO of a startup? You take a lot of things for granted at big companies. What concerns me a little bit about what happens now when I talk to you know universities or or, or different places, I think some people want to start a company more than they actually want to start a particular company. Meaning, I just want to be an entrepreneur. And I think there's a huge amount of risks there because there are things that you would take for granted or there's things that you can learn at a big company that you just can't on your own. Because once you're on your own, it's as much about survival as it is about anything. So there's less time to learn more Absolutely. skills. Absolutely. Without question. It's like, okay, we need phones. We need insurance. We need you know, this, that, and the other thing. And so you're making decisions that are necessary that certainly aren't 
you're not learning anything when you're on, you know, you're talking to the phone company all day. But so it's you learn how much we took for granted at a big company. At a big company, it's about here's a business, go build it. And everything else just sort of works, right? You show up, there's there's chairs in your office and stuff like that. I think as an entrepreneur, you, you find out really quickly how much needs to be done that has nothing to do with the, the business that you're trying to run. And, and you're there as like the lead inspiration for your team as well. Yeah, it, the, 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 the risk level, I think I fretted more about the risk other people were taking than my own risk. At one point, the highest paid person at IEX... Uh, was my assistant um, because she wanted to come and she did, you know, God bless her for coming, but she couldn't afford as big of a pay cut as the rest of us could in a way. And so, so you kind of got to do things like that to make sure that, you know, you're treating people fairly. I still fret about it. You know, people's families rely on us to make good decisions and to build a good business. And so that's a level of stress that I think you don't have at a, at a big company, but at the same time, you know, when the buck stops at you, you know, when you're the CEO of the company, you can control the amount of politics that exists in your own space and also to an extent the company space. I spent a lot of time at a big organization dealing with politics and, and that cuts into productivity. So I don't know I don't think I work more hours than I did at the big bank. I just think I work way more productively in the hours I spend. Uh, we're in a different you know, life cycle. The early life cycle, you know, fundraising was the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. It's incredibly humbling. You get rejected hundreds of times and people basically are pretty ruthless at times about the thing that, you know, your dream. It's like, here's my dream and oh, that's here's all the reasons it's not going to happen or here's why you're stupid or crazy or, you know, I heard one in a million from a pretty savvy investor. Like when you hear that, you're like, oh my God, like what have I, what have I done? Fundraising was definitely something I had no idea how hard it was going to be. Well, in that moment when you have someone who kind of like maybe someone you admire and respect and, and they just completely shoot down your dream was, did you have a moment where you questioned everything that you were doing? I had many moments where I questioned everything I was doing. One piece of advice that I give to anyone thinking about starting a company is you have to had experienced the problems that you're trying to solve. You have to. You can't, it can't be, oh, I'm told this or I've read this. It's you had to have lived through the problems you're trying to solve because there will be moments where you will doubt yourself. There will be moments where you are absolutely at rock bottom. And if you can't rely back on the fact that you have experienced the problem that you're trying to solve, you'll doubt whether that, whether that problem exists. You can talk yourself out of it in a way. So I think for, for me, I had many low moments but I would always fall back on the fact that I lived through this problem for years and I know we can solve it. And then you snap out of it pretty quickly. We had many, many ups and downs. It's another good thing about having a good team. So I, when I was out raising funds, one of our co-founders, Ronan Ryan, who's our president, him and I would go on these pitches together. And, and I think what was nice is that we'd be riding the subway back and I would be totally bummed. He'd be like, no, man, it's okay. We got this. Don't worry about it. And then he'd be totally bummed the next week. And I'd be like, okay, man, we got this. So I don't think we hit rock bottom at the same time. <laughs> so that probably kept us going too. But it's if you can afford it, having partners, teammates is really helpful. I think alone, it would have been a much scarier situation than with a team. Because they share that vision and they could 
lift you up when, when you need that boost. Yeah, and, and it's just people can focus on their areas of expertise, right? Like our CTO never left the office. He was coding, you know, nonstop. And our COO was the one getting the phone set up and doing like all these things that, you know, these thankless jobs, but he knew that's where he was, you know, kind of best focused. So I think, you know, we, we had experts that were focused in their areas. And, and yeah, do I own less of the company than I would if I didn't have? Yeah, but, you know, 50% of zero is zero. There's no way in the world IX would be where it is at this moment if I didn't have that team alongside me. So, And, and was it difficult to, in, in terms of something like building an exchange, you're working with the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, and things move gradually with right. all, like federal oversight. Was that yeah. ever frustrating in terms of things had to move maybe a bit more slowly than at other startups? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it took us two years to get our exchange approval. And in startup language, two years is an eternity. It took us another year after that to get approval to list companies. So there are pros and cons of regulation, right? The, the, the pro is that the barrier to entry is really high. The expertise level is really high. So, you know, a group of kids in college can't create a stock exchange. You just can't. You don't have the expertise. You don't have the understanding of the regulation. It's just very, very hard to do. The downside is that, yes, there is a huge wall to climb over just for the right to compete. And I do think it's why you don't see a huge amount of disruption in, you know, in our part of the world because it is so heavily regulated. A lot of times innovators are allergic to regulation, right? And I think for, for, for good reasons. So for us, it was about getting the right people setting the right kind of long-term agenda. And, and you know, I'd say this, I say this all the time, almost ad nauseum. I say, I, I believe we're on the right side of this and I can predict that we're going to be on the right side of this. What I can't predict is when that's going to happen because it's outside of our control. So we need to focus on the things we can control. I did my best to not overpromise, to not overestimate, to not like it's, it's, it's a matter of just trying to, you know, lay that plan out. And I think, in the early days, we expected the regulatory process to go very smoothly. And I think the second we understood that that was not going to be the case, we we adjusted pretty quickly. So, so you get your first company for uh, the exchange in September. Mm-hmm. How did that feel and what does that mean for IEX? Yeah, it's it's another huge milestone for us in a, in a pretty long you know, journey. And I think, um, you know, there are 13 exchanges in the United States, but if you go on the street and you ask people who are the stock exchanges in the U.S., they'll say New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. Because where a company lists automatically creates a connection to that company. And in people's minds, it validates those markets as exchanges. They've had a 40-year-old duopoly in listing major companies. And they've kept people out through the regulatory process partly, partly by, you know, fighting them and, and every step of the way. It's been it's been a battle for us. And whether it's lawsuits, it's lawsuits threatened against the SEC, it's lobbying, it's all that, you know, we've lived through all of it. If you have a duopoly, you don't want competition. And I think for us, number one, it represents competition. And number two, when I look at companies and I look at the shareholders that they have, You know, IEX's big support and backing comes from investors, long-term investors, the big ones. We continue to grow because of them. And then I look at companies. And really, these companies are listed on New York or NASDAQ. They've been hugely underserved, right? Like, all the innovation in the market certainly benefited high-speed trading. 
But how has that benefited the company? So I think for IEX, you know, our biggest value is taking the investors and the companies and aligning their interests with their exchange. Interactive Brokers, as our first listed company, is we couldn't have written a better script. Here's a company that has innovated in the market. It's one of the largest brokers that there is. Their chairman, CEO, founder, Thomas Petterfee, for me, has been an inspiration. I, I followed his career. He's People call him the father of electronic trading, right? But using technology to help investors, to help lower costs, that is what Interactive Brokers has done. We're on the same side of this debate to say, listen, there's a part of high-frequency trading that is not good whatsoever, and the exchanges have essentially enabled that. So you know, the problem with breaking a duopoly is that there's always risk to someone going first. Who's going to go first? The risk here isn't actually that high. And it took someone sophisticated to understand that. But I think having someone that knows the markets, understands market structure, go first, it sends an amazing signal to a lot of other companies, whether you're in finance or not, that this is a move you can make. Has it made those conversations you're having with companies easier? Oh, I mean, absolutely. The interest level after the interactive broker switch What's funny is when people start to think about competition, if you do an inventory and says, okay, what has my exchange done for me recently? And your answer to that is, I don't know. That's a huge problem, right? They collect about $750 million a year from these companies that are listed there. This is a sector that is in desperate need of competition, overcharging for the service and under delivering on that service. I think that's, I think we see this as just a huge opportunity. And as someone who's building his own business and someone who's served a long time in in, in a big corporation, looking at all of this, how do you personally define success? Some people have that barometer where it's about money. And I could not tell you if you asked me, if you had a gun to my head right now and said, what's the value of your stake in IEX? I would miss it. I would be wrong. I don't know. So that tells me it's not about money. I think success is about building a company that lasts, that people are proud to work at, that my kids can work at someday. And that's not measured in dollars. I think success is having a balance between what's important to you inside of work and what's important to you outside of work. And I think some amount of balance, meaning that the most important thing in my in my life is not just work. I think people equate success to work I, I actually don't. I learned the lesson early that identifying yourself too much with one thing in a way sets you up to be dramatically disappointed at some point. Uh, if I defined you know, my life around IEX, at some point in time, I might not be the right leader for IEX. And so I would step down if the company believed there was a better leader. I'd step down tomorrow if the company honestly believed that there was a better person to lead the company. I would do it. And I actually think that's what make, makes our company work. I'm the leader because I think I'm the best person for the job. I'll hire people that I think are more talented than me. And I'll be very candid with people I'm friends with about whether they're doing a good job or not. It's a business, but it's not the only thing in my life. It's certainly not the most important thing in my life. So I think success is a really, really broad term. And I think it's actually important to ask yourself that question as an individual because you can start to line up the things that you do on a daily basis behind what your what your view of success is. Well, thanks, Brad. Thanks for talking to me. Cool. Awesome. Cool. Thanks for listening to This Is Success from Business Insider. Our show is produced by Anna Mazarakis and Sarah Wyman. 
Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer, and I'm Rich Filoni. Before you go, we've got a glimpse at something most people don't see with Katsuyama, his romantic side. I've played the piano since I was five years old. I wrote a song for our wedding. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and our, our 10-year anniversary is on September 20th. It was the weekend Lehman went bankrupt. <laughs> so, yeah, that was an interesting time to get married. But, yeah, I, I played the piano a long time. I write music, and I do that kind of Did you of write a song for the 10-year anniversary? I did not. That's uh, not too late. No, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> don't hear that. Yeah, I don't. I don't, <laughs> want, I don't want the bar to be too high because yeah. there, there, there will be no song coming. Yeah. <laughs> Next week on the show, we've got Steve Case. Through his venture capital firm Revolution, he's trying to help the U.S. ease into the next wave of internet companies. And as the founder of AOL, he's done this before. Critics thought he was naive back then. Why would somebody go to trouble buying a personal computer? So they can like type a message on a keyboard to somebody when you know they can just pick up the phone and call somebody. Like that's not going to ever work. Subscribe to This Is Success in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to catch that episode and explore our archive. Please leave us a rating and write a review. It helps others find the show. This Is Success is a production of Insider Audio.